the book of Acts in chapter 1, we find starting in verse 3, and it's speaking of Jesus Christ, the now resurrected Christ, it says, He also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so Christ made it very plain that they were to stay, and it was obvious that approaching was the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, which to each of us has great significance and a great deal of meaning, I'd like to focus today on one aspect of this day. And it actually was sort of an interesting revelation, I believe, not only to the servants of God, but also in many ways to what was taking place in a religious community among the Jewish people. We read in chapter 2 of verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. The sound you would hear in a strong gust of wind, that was what they heard. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So it wasn't as if it just simply happened and apparently passed through quickly. It literally filled the room. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. So individually, each one of them had above them this, as it were, a tongue of fire. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, as we read on, we know that this was a tremendous witness to those who were present. But all at once, in a very public manner, because this became not only a, a matter of conversation, became, uh, a, a, you might say, a situation that continued. And, of course, it continued into the founding of and the beginning of the Church of God. But as this took place, we read in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, excuse me, chapter 23 and verse 8, that there was a, a leading group of a sect of the Pharisees, or the uh, Jewish people, the Sadducees, that this had to be an incredible shock to, and it was not something they wanted to believe. Notice here in Acts chapter 23 and verse 8, Paul, Paul had found himself between kind of a rock in a hard place because of accusations. And he realized that the audience was divided, and he took advantage of that division. And the division was in doctrine and their understanding. In verse 7 of Acts chapter 23, it says, When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now what he said was, I am a Pharisee, verse 6, the son of a Pharisee, and concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. So he changed the focus. And yet, at the same time, that was his hope. And you can read that later in chapter 24 when he publicly appeared. But the problem here, and the reason there was a dissension, says verse 8, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. But they also notice this and no angel or spirit. So it wasn't just a matter of the promise of the resurrection they denied. They actually denied a spirit world. And one of the things that God has made us very aware of, and it's very important we are aware of it, is that there is a spirit world. In the book of Ephesians, we find that this world is something we cannot ignore. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, God says he's brought us out of or called us out of the world that has a spirit that has a great influence. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, 
It says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works and the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with, he, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so God called us. He separated us from that world. And it's important to understand when we think of our calling that we've been called out of a spiritual influence. In the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, Paul said as he concluded his letter to the church in Ephesus, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore. And it tells us that what strengthens us is having your waist girded with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And it's interesting because what he also tells us is that God has equipped us to deal with the spiritual influences of the world about us. And as we look at the world about us, we see Satan's influence and the degradation of society. It seems like it's just accelerating. And in many ways, it strengthens us to realize what we have, but I think it also should help us spiritually to understand how to be more effective in our calling and how we react to what God has given to us. Notice in Ephesians chapter 2, again, going back to verse 4. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting this time, as I ended before, I'd repeat, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God has literally given to us and created for us a different environment. He's put us within a body, and it's a spiritual body. He made his servants very aware of the fact that what the difference that took place is that now indwelling in them was the Spirit of God. We also read then, as we go back to Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, because the reaction to what God had done was one that convicted and cut to the heart of many people as they heard God's servants being expired by the Holy Spirit, who explained to them what had happened and what had taken place. And so in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, now when they heard this, because what God's servant said to them, verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it was a gift promise. It was a gift that Jesus Christ spoke of. And it's a promise that the Bible shows in verse 39. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And as we continue to celebrate God's holy days during this year, we know that we will be led through 
the fall holy days, and of course, we realize on the eighth day, that last great day, that God's love and that calling and the access to God's Holy Spirit, that promise is going to be fulfilled for everyone, for every man, woman, and child. But that promise is a promise of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. That promise is something that totally changes our life if we take advantage of and understand how God is working in our life. And that's my focus today, is to understand how is God working in us and to really take advantage of that. Sometimes we can get, because we are, we're flesh and blood. We're physical human beings. We need food. We need air. Uh, We need uh, to sleep at night. Uh, We can grow tired, and as we get older, we begin to have aches and pains, and and sometimes even our uh, younger members uh, have health issues that they have to deal with. In other words, we live in a world where we're exposed to, in many ways, the impact of Satan's influence. We're exposed to the results of sin, and we're not immune from it. We live in this world. We often are touched by it, but we should be motivated by those experiences But we need to be motivated not so much physically, but to understand spiritually what God is doing. Because what God is doing is spiritual. He's not going to sustain the physical. Notice in the book of Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul wrote and made a very simple but very direct statement about the physical, that which we see, And it's amazing what we're beginning to see. We're beginning to look out into the universe and realize that truly the stars of heaven are like the sands of the sea. It's far more than I think man ever anticipated. When we look with the tools that we have to understand, not at the great and expansive level of our universe or the stars in heaven we see at night, but even within the very structure of our body. I found it very interesting to, and saw this on YouTube and saw several sites, and also did some reading, that in each of our bodies is a cell. And those cells literally, the human body has approximately, based on scientific estimates, about 30 trillion. But in each cell, you have DNA. You've probably seen pictures of it. Uh, Sometimes it's like a coil, and you see the various uh, lines drawn across it because the DNA carries, in a a sense, the code of our uh, body, who we are physically, that is in this flesh. And what we don't realize is that in each cell, wrapped in a very tight coil, if if you see it illustrated by drawings, you simply see lines. But if someone has posted or you see at the result of extreme magnification a picture where they've kind of untaken and taken the coil and pulled it out or seen a part of it, it really looks like fuzzy yarn. But if you take the, the DNA of one cell and you stretch it out, it's actually over six feet long. And yet it's physical. It's something we can see with the eye. If you take the the cells of your body, if you are the average, and I'm not sure if that's determined by size and weight, but what I have read is that the average human body has about 30 trillion cells. And if you take that and you multiply it, six feet by 30 trillion, the DNA lineage, if you were taken, stretch it all in one continuous line for each of us, the length of that is 34 billion miles. And that's almost hard to imagine. It's illustrated at various sites by how long it would take to travel to Pluto and how many times you could go back and forth. Or, uh, in other words, it's tried to illustrate in a way that even then our mind doesn't really comprehend. And so we're just learning about things, but yet it's physical. It's a tool that God uses. We read here in... 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 says, While we do not look at the things which are seen, 
And I guess that's part of what I want to impart today. As we're careful about what we look at and what we focus on. But at the things which are not seen. Because our focus needs to be on the spiritual things in relationship to our salvation, in relationship to our understanding of the things we're taught. We need to look on the spiritual things, brethren, as they touch our lives and our heart and who we are. The inner man. The man that literally is being built through the Spirit of God, which God describes as we yield to him and we use his Spirit as a new creation. It says, for the things which are seen are temporary. So everything we see with our eye, it says those are temporary. And as we keep God's holy days, we know that at the conclusion on the eighth day, or as the end of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, a time of salvation for the great numbers of people who have never heard of the name of Christ, all of that is brought to conclusion by the end of this present world, this age, and the Bible speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. And it obviously makes it very plain that the life we have and the life of what is about us is immortal, that it's not temporary, it's forever. He goes on to say, and this is an interesting statement, so what we see is temporary. The world about it is temporary. The homes we dwell in, our physical body, all of this is temporary. But the things which are not seen, so what we don't see, the forces, the powers that we do not see. And it's interesting because Even those who study space and they try to measure and understand all of the forces that are in play. A number of years ago, I read on a NASA site that what we can measure accounts for only between 5 and at the very most 10% at all of the energy that we see in our universe. 95 or 90 to 95% of it has been labeled basically as dark matter. And yet that's the great preponderance of the force and the energy that we see even just physically. It's dark matter. It's what we don't see. We can recognize it. We can recognize it by what it's doing, what's happening. And I think that's important to understand spiritually. God opened the doors to the reality that there is a spirit world. And, of course, that was actually something the Sadducees had difficulty dealing with. I'll not turn to it, but you'll find that the preaching of the resurrection was very upsetting to them. You can read that in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 4 and the first few verses of that chapter. But the reality was is that to God's people, he opened up the understanding that it's through my spirit. This is how I'm going to change the world. This is what's going to give you and, and to each of us that God has called. Each of us will have within us the Spirit of God as a begattle. And, of course, that took place to God's servants who were there on the day of Pentecost. And it has continued and will continue as we go forward. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, we see illustrated what God does actually by the calling of the Apostle Paul. God struck him down and how he was physically dealt with actually in many ways reveals to us what happens when God literally gives us his spirit and has separated us now as a part of the body of his son, Jesus Christ. So we read in Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to pick up the story here as what transpired. We find where God gave instruction to his servant Ananias. And he followed God's instruction. And in verse 17, it says, Then Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me. Notice he'd been sent specifically because of what God had done and what had happened to the apostle. Now, what had happened to Saul If we go back to verse 8, we find that 
In verse 7, it says, And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And the voice he heard was the result first of a bright light that shone around him from heaven in verse 3. Then he fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, and this is really where we have to understand this, this is where we truly are when God begins to work in our life. He says, who are you, Lord? Well, sometimes we don't really distinguish that because we live in a society where whether we're a part of a Baptist church or a Catholic church or we have no church, we certainly have heard, heard the name and know the significance of the name of Jesus Christ. Now, Saul did, but he didn't understand the identity. And that's the point we need to recognize, that we certainly heard the name in the case of Saul. He considered the teaching of Christ as a heresy, and he was going to put an end to it. And so he persecuted God's people. The Lord said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You, know, you stub your toes, it hurts. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So we find here, as we read before, that those who were with him, they heard the voice, but they saw no one. When Saul arose, verse 8, when his eyes were open, he saw no one. So he stood up, and, and suddenly he's blinded. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank, because he was a devout Man, but he was of the sect of the Pharisees. And so he immediately turned to fasting. He understood from knowing the Old Testament that that was a way to draw close to God. That was a way to appeal to God. And so dropping back down to where we were before, we find where Ananias had followed God's instruction. And here is Saul. And we find, it says, laying his hands on him, that is on Saul, he's, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And you know, brethren, that's what God does. His Holy Spirit suddenly opens to us a completely new world. And... Many times it's God, it's very clear in the Scripture, the book of John, that leads us to that point. But I think it's so important to understand that what God has brought us to is a point where literally our mind can be opened. It's not a physical change. It's a change that takes place of the mind and heart. And what is given to us is sight. It's the ability to see and understand things that we did not see clearly. We may have known about them. We may have even begun to really try to keep and practice. And as we did, I think God gives a certain level of understanding that leads to repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. But brethren, we're to grow from there. We have been given a gift that is intended to help us to grow and to change, to become God's very children. Let's notice in 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, that what we're given is understanding. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul again explains this. And he tells us that the things that we come to see and understand of God in the world we live in is a mystery. Verse 7, he says, We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. That's why 
over the years, God's ministry, Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Meredith, and today Mr. Weston, they all encourage us to realize that it requires God's calling. And although we can speak to others and encourage them, and which we certainly should do if they have an interest in some aspect of the truth or our faith, to realize it's God ultimately that is calling and working in them if it produces fruit. If God uses us in some way that's, that's good, it's a wonderful experience, but at the same time, God's only using us. And when we have that opportunity, as the Bible brings out, we should use it well. We should be able to speak of the faith. There's what convicted us, what is a part of our life. It's not always, brethren, explaining every doctrine or being able to answer every question. The Bible really is telling us to share what's a part of our life with someone because they need to learn themselves. They need to study if God is opening their understanding. But that's what happened with us. Notice verse 10, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. It's not something that has to do with the physical, because God's intent is not to sustain the temporary world. It has to do with the spirit. It has to do with that which will last forever, that which is eternal. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? You know, sometimes when we have difficulty understanding something, but we're going to read God's word. It's so important we turn to God and ask him through his Holy Spirit to give us understanding, to open our eyes, to literally, in a sense, inspire us so we grasp and see the depth of his word. And sometimes, because I've found many times in my life, I've read through certain scriptures many times, and, and suddenly all at once I see something I never saw. And I know that it wasn't my mind, <laughs> If it was my mind, I would have seen it. I'd been there so many times. But all at once, for whatever reason, I recognize something. And, of course, whether it's understanding or, or some aspect of what God is explaining, sometimes it's just a little nuance. But it's always inspirational when that happens. So it tells us here as we read on, even so no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. And that's very important to understand, and that no one includes us except it be through God's Spirit. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So God's given us the Spirit so that we would know, so we would understand. That's his intent. That's his purpose. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us really, in a sense, to become really aware of and think about and understand the spiritual things that he's revealed to us. Not just to know about them, but rather to really understand. And, of course, in that understanding, to begin to realize how important each area of our understanding is it becomes a part of our life. It becomes a part of our identity. The spirit we have, the Bible clearly tells us, comes from the Father. Notice in John chapter 15, and there are many passages in the Bible that bring this out, but I think it's important for us to, as I go forward, at least point this out. In John chapter 15, verse 26, Christ said, when the Helper comes, this is a promise he had made to his disciples and the apostles, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So he told them a part of the responsibility that they were to be witnesses and in that sense, messengers of the truth to their man, fellow mankind. But it comes from the Father. The source of God's Spirit is the Father. One of the things I know and we all are familiar with, but I'd like to point out to you is in using God's Spirit, the Bible speaks of God's Spirit as like water. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 7, 
And this was said during the feast on the last great day. In verse 37 of John chapter 7, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And I'd like to equate that to something we read and know, and that is the fruits of the Spirit. Let's notice in the book of Galatians, God speaks of the fruits of the two influences of the spiritual realm. Now, part of it is just our flesh and the fact that we are created physical and Satan is the God of this world. And he has influenced, and he himself, actually, the Bible reveals, was very materialistic. The Bible speaks of his sin because of the multitude of the merchandise. And so all the details of that we don't clearly see or understand. But in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, it tells us in chapter 5 and starting here in verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. And, of course, the Apostle Paul speaks of this also in the book of Romans. It says, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now, he's speaking to someone who has God's Spirit. And I think often, brethren, that's something that we experience. It's very frustrating. It's actually very discouraging sometimes. We set certain goals or purposes in life and... We find that we find it very difficult at times to do the things that we had been inspired to do. Maybe you listen to a sermon and you go home and think, well, I'm, I'm going to make some changes. And, and you maybe have very strong intent. In fact, you find yourself really then kind of in a battle to continue. And, and there is a, 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 a war that's going on. And that war is, much of it is literally within our own flesh, our decision-making, our desire to do the things that please God. And so Paul acknowledged that. He acknowledged that personally in the book of Romans. He acknowledges it regarding each of us. He says, but you are, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. We're no longer under the penalty of the law. We still must obey God, and that's actually something we'll look at in a little bit, because one of the ways God's Spirit works in us is the fruit of obedience. It's what obedience does to us in our heart, our mind, and our thinking, but that's because God's Spirit is a part of that. The works of the flesh are evident. And I'd like to point out to you, you know, many years ago, Mr. Armstrong emphasized there's a way of get, and there's a way of give. And if you think about the fruits, each of these fruits, as they're described, are motivated by selfish desire. They're motivated by a desire to get, to fulfill something of the flesh. Whether it's adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, we think, well, that's just an emotion. No, it's an emotion that springs from our flesh and about ourself. It's because we're looking at self-interest. Many times people are motivated to hatred, not because even of harm, but rather because of the things that form in their mind, the anger, and, and, and not sometimes even things that happen to them. They may have happened to others. We see people who protest, and you, you talk to them. Nothing happened in their life. You know, they were never personally oppressed, but they read about or heard others talk about, and they're just simply emotionally charged, and they're charged to hatred and anger. It says, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresy, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. If you... Take the time and meditate on each of what is listed here. It has a motivation that is, it surrounds the self. 
and has a motivation that centers on the person, the individual. And it's not outward. It's not reaching outward to others. But if you look at what it says regarding the fruits of God's Spirit, notice here, I'd like to read the end of verse 21. It says, And the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And please notice, I know Mr. Meredith would often point out to us, when it talks about being led by God's Spirit, the emphasis on what you practice. Is that what you do as a practice is how God identifies the path you follow. But notice in the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The interesting thing about love is is really is something you give. It's something you express to someone else. It's something that comes out of you. It's not just about self. You know, we, we certainly should not hate our flesh in the sense of the, the blessing of life and the blessing of the gifts that God has given to us. We should actually be very thankful for those things. But we also know from God's Spirit that the focus of His Spirit is an outgoing Spirit. So it's joy. There is a joy in knowing that you have a relationship with God. But when it flows out from you, then you bring joy to others. You in some way encourage them, inspire them. Notice what I'm wanting to bring out is that if you want to grow in the fruits of God's Spirit, to try to do these things outwardly in an outward manner towards someone else. And as you do that, as the Spirit of God, the living water that flows from your heart flows outward, you're going to change and you're going to grow. It was all about something that you're trying to produce within the self. You're not going to succeed as you think you would. It's going to be a frustrating battle. But if you do it as Christ did in sacrifice, if you do it as God did in the expression of his love to us, that he gave his only begotten son, not to condemn. In other words, you've understand a principle of what we actually see by the very hand and practice of God, and that is outward. You'll grow. Life will change. Your heart will change. Your, your thoughts will change. How you perceive things begin to change. It says peace. It requires that you act peacefully. You might have someone who wishes to battle with you, but the Bible tells us the soft answer turns away wrath. The carnal reaction to a situation like that is to meet anger with anger. To meet, you know, someone criticizing or putting you down with the same kind of approach. In fact, sometimes people do that simply not so much that that's their thought, but it's rather because of the hurt. But it's not successful. What is successful is to, when someone does something like that, either be quiet or to speak in words that are peaceful. A soft answer. Long-suffering. You, you are patient with someone. That's difficult at times, but it, God tells us that's the fruit of His Spirit. I've learned that patience has aided a great deal when I realize how much mercy and patience I need of God. And then it's not so difficult to be patient and to realize that if someone's working through a problem, and certainly if they're a member of God's church, that perhaps God is working their life, but they're learning lessons. And maybe at first I don't see everything or family and others don't see but I sometimes, in retrospect, I can look back and see how people learned very, very important lessons. But it took time. It wasn't something where, you know, sometimes good things take time to grow and mature. And, and God knows our time. He gives us life. And he knows what he's doing to produce the fruit that he wants. So, again, I'd point out to you, all of these fruits actually are outgoing. If we look at God's example and his expression of love, if we look at the joy that is a part of life, if we look at 
the blessing of peace, which is a fruit of God's Spirit, a fruit of obedience to God, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So all of these have a, a different approach. And unless we really see that and understand that in a spiritual way, it can be really frustrating to try to grow in the spirit, the fruits of the Spirit. It's much better not to focus on self, but try to show those things to others. In the church of God, among our brethren, in family, relationships we have, people we meet, that, you know, the immediate thought and reaction that we have is, is not a, one of, you know, carnal or our normal physical reaction, that we allow God's Spirit to lead us. Verse 24 says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. And that is what happens. This, it is a, a kind of a battle. It is something where you might be making progress and suddenly find yourself being challenged. And so it says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And so one of the realities of God's Spirit working in us, brethren, is that it's real. It's a part of our mind. It's a part of a gift God has given to us. And it's also that spirit that was within us is a guarantee or a promise that God has made to us. We live in a world where most people think of spirit as sort of like a whiff of, uh, you know, smoke or, or something that has no structure. But the Bible doesn't represent spirit in that manner. It represents God's spirit as a, as a power. He told his disciples that they would be given power. And in God's church, because so often that phrase is used, that it's a power of God's Spirit, that we tend to define it that way. But the Bible also speaks of the power that God used to create. And it was by his command and by the Spirit of God. The Bible tells us that, as we've read, that understanding comes from God's Spirit. And so it's a power to open our eyes and introduce us into a sense and totally different dimension than the physical world that we see. But that dimension is also very, very real. Let's notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, after Paul revealed that what we see physically is temporary and what we don't see is eternal... In verse 5, it says, We know that if our earthly house, this tent. He says, if this tent. And he speaks of it as a house. Well, it's physical. Not a puff of air. It's not something that, you know, just drifts about or dust that you throw. No, we will become dust. But we were created. And we were created in God's image. And there is actually a body. And the body that we possess is in the image of our Creator. So if this house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God. That's not just a puff of wind or some kind of, you know, life in a way that would not relate to the things that we have experienced. God's preparing us. So it says we have a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. This habitation. We literally will have a spiritual body, even as God does. The Bible describes that. Even as Christ had when he was resurrected. He appeared to his disciples. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that he appeared to over 500 brethren at one time. He didn't appear as some, you know, whiff of air or puff of smoke. He didn't appear to Thomas in that way. But he was spirit. He was at that point immortal. He had gone to his father, been received by his father. And of course, we know as He fulfilled the period of time of instruction to lay the foundation for the beginning of the church of God. They saw him, which I did not read in Acts chapter 21, ascend, or excuse me, Acts chapter 1, to ascend into the heavens. 
And so when we talk of spirit, take a look what the Bible says about it. It's not my intent in this sermon to to go into all of the many scriptures, but as you do, you realize it's something that we're not really familiar with in a sense of like we might look at matter or something physical we can make something of, and yet it's a real, there's a reality to it. And God's Spirit fills His creation. And God's Spirit is a power. But there's also that God Himself is a spirit. God is spirit. And that's very important to understand. You know, in our fundamental statements of belief of the living church of God, it's our official statement of fundamental beliefs, we have a very short explanation. And the intent of this was always that it be brief, not that it be very long. It just sort of gives someone an introduction. But it speaks here of the Holy Spirit. And it says, this is page 3, God is spirit. The Holy Spirit is the very essence, the mind, life, and power of God. It is not a being. And that's important to understand. You know, some people wish to speak of, in a sense, the spirit of God as if it's like a puff, but that also represents who he is. So it is not a being. The spirit is inherent in the Father and the Son and emanates from them throughout the entire universe. And it references 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Psalm chapter 139, verse 7, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 24. It was through the Spirit that God created all things, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and also Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. It is the power by which God maintains the universe. It's brought out in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It is given to all who repent of their sins and are baptized, Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, as we read. And is the power, Acts chapter 1, verses 8, or verse 8, and also 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, by which all believers may be overcomers. And that's brought out, and we'll go there, in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. And, of course, the promise to the overcomer is brought out in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. So I'd like to read that sentence again without the Scripture so we get the impact of it. Since it is given to all who repent of their sins and are baptized and is the power by which all believers may be overcomers and will be led to eternal life. Because, see, brethren, it's how God works in our life. And if we look at things physically and we measure things physically and we begin to use that as a standard of even sometimes our, you might say, association in church and the things we focus on, especially in terms of trying to grow as a Christian, we miss the mark. You know, when you're trying to accomplish something and you've been, giving a, been given a tool, knowing how to use it is so very, very important. And someone who knows how to use a tool and uses it effectively, then they're only limited by the power of the tool. And the tool that God's given us is the power of the universe. And the only limitation we truly have is that we need to learn to grow, to use it, to have the faith. But we have been given the power to literally change. Let's notice as we read on here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says that we're going to be given a house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, grown, being burdened, burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. Just understand that life that we have and the gifts that we've been given, it's really, even though it's wonderful and a beautiful thing, it cannot be compared, as is brought out also by Paul, to what God has in store. 
I, I absolutely love, it's one of my favorite scriptures or a phrase in the Bible, that we wish to be further clothed. It says that mortality may be swallowed up by life. That this flesh and blood, which is not going to continue, it's going to slip, simply be swallowed up. Something so much more powerful, something that's so much greater, is simply going to take over. It will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. So we should never be ashamed of. We should be very bold to try to ask God and to fulfill what he's doing in our life. Whether it's to change our heart, whether it's to learn to be more giving, to learn to know how to help and share and give joy to others, whether it's to learn to kindness or all the fruits of the Spirit, those are things God's prepared us for. It's what he wants. And so we never should back away from asking him in prayer. We should never back away from petitioning him or perhaps we're, you know, in a situation all at once we find ourselves, you know, being challenged. Don't be afraid to say, Father, help me. You know, even just informally in your heart, Father, be with me. You know, we would think, you know, is that really approach and respectful? You know, it's, it was actually God who told his servants. He said, if you're called before kings and judges, don't prepare. Don't worry about it. What you will need will be given to you that very hour. And, you know, you think about that and think, well, so many times we, we look and think we need to do this, this, and this and do our part. There are times the only time we have a part, brethren, is to trust God. The time we have a part is to simply recognize we need him. And God will be there for us. He's promised that if we find ourselves in a situation, if we were called before authorities or were put on a spot, do we think about it and try to do our part? I think we should, especially when we know in advance. But in a situation like that, you neither have control, nor do you actually know, have any idea of what is going to come. God says, don't worry about it. Don't be stressed. Trust me. It says, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us a spirit as a guarantee. Or a down payment or an earnest payment. There was God's spirit in us. And the fact he's given us this tool, brethren, is also the evidence and the encouragement and the strength that should encourage us to use it. So this day is literally about the revelation to men, to mankind. That God lives in a spiritual realm. And those he calls that he has given the power of that realm to change their life. And that promise is a part of that. But brethren, that promise comes by being God's sons. Notice in the book of Romans, because in our statement of beliefs, it references the book of Romans. And I'd like to point out to you, that Paul expanded upon being led by God's Spirit. In other words, how do we use God's Spirit? In Romans chapter 8, and I'll not read the part that speaks of the problems of our carnality and the hindrance it is to us. It tells us in verse 8, to summarize those verses, and you can also, and I'd encourage you to read uh, chapter 7, and how Paul said that he delighted in the law of God according to the inward man, but he recognized or he saw another law in his members warring against the law of my mind. And he realized that his salvation was not through self-discipline and, and his own self, his salvation. Who would deliver him was Jesus Christ. It was through grace, it was through God's mercy. Now, did he give up? Did he feel like I have no part? No, you can read in the scripture where Paul says, I fought a good fight. And he tells us if a man runs, he runs with all. If he fights, he fights with all. As Mr. Armstrong would tell us, you turn to God in faith as if it all depended on you, but you ask God and trust in him. In other words, we do everything we can, but then we trust in God as if it all depended upon him. And in this case, it really does. 
because none of us can save ourselves. All we can do is show God our heart, let Him work in our life, let the fruit be produced that He seeks in us by yielding ourselves and submitting ourselves to Him, by drawing nigh to Him. And brethren, how He works in our life, the experiences of our life, our experiences even in the church of God. The situation, whether it be of our calling or situation in life, all of those things God knew and he presently knows. But he continues to prepare us. Sometimes it's hard for some of those who have been called late in life to realize that maybe they're only going to live a couple years, but it was God who made that decision. And he saw something in them that he sought, maybe allowed them to go through a time physically to learn certain lessons. But the important thing to realize is that when we talk about our salvation, it's of God. And it's because of a relationship. We read then in verse 9, it says, Be you not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, that's been given to us by promise. So that assurance we have is a covenant we entered into at baptism. God said it's a promise. It is Promise he made. And brethren, it's a promise he'll keep. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Does that mean we're always righteous? No, it says that what happens in us, what is of life, is when we do things that are righteous. That's what's going to continue. That's what's eternal. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. God's working in our life. That he would give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you is that our life begins to be in a very temple of the Spirit of God. And we yield ourselves to Him. We're aware of that relationship. Verse 12, it says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption or sonship by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. The focus of this day is a revelation that God gave us spirit. He revealed actually to the Sadducees and the world at that time the reality of a spiritual world. He revealed to his servants that the very spirit and the power of God would be an indwelling spirit within them. He revealed to them how they could change, how they could be converted. Christ has said to Peter, when you are converted, I I doubt very much if, if Peter did not hear those words and think a great deal about them. But then he came to the realization that God used him to understand that conversion took place not of the flesh, but through the Spirit of God. And if you're going to fulfill what God is doing in your life, it's going to be because you focus on that tool. It's going to be because you understand that what God has done is remove the scales of your eyes. He's helped you to see. And when you've been given sight, you use it. You don't close your eyes. You don't go to sleep. You use it. You study. You look in his word. You look at life. You try to understand. You do what God's servant David did, where he read God's laws and He delighted in it, but he also meditated. And now he drew close to God in prayer and how he was very, very concerned that God's Spirit be a part of him. When he sinned, he said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
because he understood that that is how God had touched his life and it's how he touches our life. So I think it's very important. We've come out of a world that doesn't understand. Sometimes it uses a lot of language. You know, there are people who talk about, you know, getting the spirit or whether it's to speak in various, you know, tongues or whatever you wish to label it. It's not of God. But that to them is what that experience is about. We have other people that view it in a totally different way. But they don't see and understand what God's revealed to us. And that the Spirit of God is something God's placed within us. And brethren, that's a tool by which we can grow. It's a tool that we should pray and ask God for to expand in our life, to allow to flow through us. That literally as we give and we use God's Spirit, that we become a stream. Jesus Christ was a river of living water. We could just imitate that very thought and and that concept. It will help us to be much more pleasing in God's sight. It will help us to fulfill our calling. It will help us, brethren, to be pleasing servants, both our Father and our Lord and Savior.